This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, and this is episode 16 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. On this episode, we're talking again about the big diplomatic crisis that has erupted between uh, the Trump administration and the Kingdom of Denmark. And it's a giant constituent part of the kingdom, Greenland, the largest island in the world that uh, Trump expressed interest in buying about a week ago. And in these past uh, five or six days, it just what seemed at first about an amusing little sideshow has really become a big international incident that uh, we're going to discuss here on uh, this episode of the Apollo Geopolitics podcast. And we're extremely excited to have to uh, provide expert uh, commentary and sort of a historical and uh, U.S. foreign policy outlook on this matter. We have Paul Musgrave, an assistant professor of government at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, my old alma mater. Also the author of an article in the Journal of Foreign Policy a few days ago, American imperialists have always dreamed of Greenland, which, Paul, you wrote uh, just a couple of days after this story leaked in the Wall Street Journal about uh, Trump's interest in buying Greenland. At first, I wasn't really sure how um, serious it was, but it seems now he was actually quite serious about this. So, uh, Paul Musgrave, thanks very much for joining us. Wonderful to be here. Let's start by saying this seems like it's become more serious as than initially we thought it was. Well, I think you're right to remind everybody that when the story first came out in the Wall Street Journal Thursday evening, so about a week ago, people thought that this was just kind of another oddity in the Trump administration and was even framed in the article as this thing that he'd brought up over dinner a couple of times and aides weren't sure if he was serious, um, but the journal has a very good Arctic desk, weirdly enough, and so they ran with the story and he got some attention. And then over the weekend, Trump joked about it and then it started to get really serious. And I think that it got serious after the Danish Prime Minister Fredrickson kind of said that Greenland is not for sale, something that was obvious to everybody else except for, you know, a few folks in the White House, that Greenland cannot be sold. It is part, as you said, of the Kingdom of Denmark. It's a constituent country. And then it has become really serious. And as more details have come out, and especially after President Trump canceled the state visit that he was going to go on in a few weeks, people have begun to wonder, like, why was he going to Denmark in the first place? And there's now even some rumors that actually the trip to Denmark Denmark was about making an offer for Greenland, uh, that Trump had found out that Denmark itself transfers about 600 million U.S. Uh, a year to Greenland, uh, to the 50, 60,000 people who live there, and that Trump was going to assume that, was going to pay off the Kingdom of Denmark and literally by Greenland. And so this may have actually been the whole point of the trip. And this is it, it's hard to describe how this fits in. I mean, in the article, I talked about Trump being kind of a man out of his time, and his time seems to be about 1885, uh, which is the last time we had lots of kingdoms and empires engaging in this kind of behavior. For their part, I think the government in Copenhagen has been very good about making clear that the United States is Denmark's most important security partner, that this is not a fundamental breach. But the way that President Trump has talked about the prime minister, calling her nasty and, and all this, you get the sense that the, the White House, no matter how ridiculous this policy sounds, and it really is ridiculous, but no matter how ridiculous it sounds, the White House is actually invested in it. And so it's been it's gone from being amusing to kind of a sick, tragic joke. Uh, in the space of a week. Trump seems to have taken this very personally, especially he's fixated on the word uh, that the uh, Danish prime minister used, uh, calling this uh, this idea absurd. It seems like that really wounded Trump. He's been kind of uh, complaining about that very publicly the last few hours even. 
Yeah, I, I think that he is offended, and I think that you know this is yet another attempt where he's tried to make a deal. He's tried to you know really be kind of a mocker, kind of a guy who can get things done, and yet he's just gone nowhere. And in fact, has blown up in his face. And you know, if he was thinking about this the way that the early reports suggested that you know buying Greenland uh, and possibly leading it to statehood. Um, would be kind of a, a legacy ceiling deal. The combination of being told no, of being told no by a woman, and of being told no by a country that he clearly thinks is more valuable than its parts. You've got to wonder what Trump actually knows about Denmark uh, for him to think that you know, the Danes need to sell their country. You know, I don't have the numbers in front of my head, but I do know that Denmark is right in the same ballpark as the U.S. in terms of per capita GDP. And as we all know, it is the happiest country on earth. So I'm not sure why anybody would want to be sold from there and, and become part of the United States, which just isn't much of a better deal. So yeah, he seems offended. He seems wounded. And that really supports the idea that this wasn't just something that he'd mentioned. And, you know, it would kind of be a crazy thing if he just mentioned it, but we could have a conversation. But he really, really seems to believe that countries are just like, as he said, a real estate deal, that you can just buy and sell their territory and buy and sell their sovereignty. And that's just a mindset that after the Second World War, we thought that we had put to bed, that we thought we buried, basically. That's a very interesting perspective. And a lot of people that have been commenting on this have uh, pointed to the precedent of uh, offers to buy Greenland in the past, Harry Truman, uh, also the, uh, what was it, Paul Seward, was it? Was the Secretary of State back in the... Yeah, William Seward, William uh, Seward right. for the Andrew Johnson administration. And of of course, that administration did succeed in buying Alaska, which was similarly in the far north, uh, similarly a colony at that point of the Russian Empire. Uh, and Greenland and Iceland were at that point both colonies of Denmark. And back in the 1860s, uh, the Andrew Johnson administration, Secretary of State Seward, were actually trying to buy the Caribbean possessions of Denmark, uh, St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John, what are now the U.S. Virgin Islands. And they were trying to do that because it would give America a naval base in the Caribbean and allow it to expand its power. And as that deal was going through, and the, Dan the Danes actually agreed to that sale, the Americans were the ones who ended up walking away from that. Uh, and they were actually going to pay more for those three small islands than they did for all of Alaska. So as that sale was going through, the Danish government kind of mentioned to the U.S. representative, you know, we also have <laughs> Greenland and Iceland. And, you know, the Americans said, well, you know, if we're going to do this, let's go ahead and get those two. And that ended up going nowhere. But that was actually a pretty serious thing. I mean, that wasn't just something that was discussed. Um, but the Secretary of State, Seward, commissioned a report. It was seriously discussed. You know, they were, they were really willing to do this. And I think that the Danes probably would have been willing to sell. So, you know, you've got those precedents, precedents, and then you've got the precedent in 1946-1947, where after the United States had, people have used the term occupied Greenland. I think it's more fair to say had stolen Greenland during the duration of the war from the Nazi-occupied Danish government. And the United States had decided it was really convenient having Greenland as a base. 
And so they offered to buy it for $100 million in 1946 money. Um, and the Danes said, yeah, this is ridiculous. Of course, instead, the United States got the right to maintain all of its military installations in Greenland without the consent of the native peoples who lived there. And this was all done before Greenland became part of the Kingdom of Denmark, uh, before the unity of the realm. So this was when Greenland was really a colony. So there have been these attempts, but you know, we're talking now about decades and decades and decades ago. And, and in the case of the uh, earlier one, 150 years ago, it's also worth noting the United States hasn't bought any territory in 102 years. Ironically, the last time they did that, it was actually buying the U.S. Virgin Islands from Denmark. And they, they bought those during the First World War to prevent the Germans from getting a hold of them and threatening the Panama Canal. So Trump is right thinking that Denmark and the United States have done business before. Why not uh, do it again? And within the context of contemporary Arctic geopolitics, perhaps, I mean, you just mentioned there the the Virgin Islands that uh, were purchased uh, because of concerns over German, perhaps, uh, occupation, forward basing of, of military assets. You think part of the reason now that, uh, that Trump has uh, shown an interest in, in Greenland, of course, you're talking about the, the mineral interests and all the rest that uh, the Trump uh, perhaps uh, is interested in, but also the, the geostrategic, the the, the more, of course, there's always there's already the Tula base and other. It's it's long been during the Cold War an important uh, place for um, U.S. Uh, military for defenses. But uh, these days, there's concern perhaps uh, of encroachment by, in particular, China. China showing a lot of interest right. in, in Greenland. Do you think that is uh, one of the the main motivations for this? What otherwise seemed out of nowhere attempt to uh, buy Greenland from Denmark. Well, I think that this is something that has kind of fallen off of the popular debate because it's become very focused on Greenland, very focused on U.S.-Danish relations. But I think you and your readers will, or your listeners will remember that back in May, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo gave a very fiery speech at the Arctic Council, where he basically declared that this was America's moment to shine. He picked a fight with Canada over some border disputes that, honest to God, nobody remembered. I don't think the Canadians were briefed on the idea that they had some longstanding border disputes uh, over the Northwest Passage. Um, he picked a fight more obviously with the Russians, with the Chinese. And this is pertinent because Secretary of State Pompeo was speaking at the Arctic Council, and Denmark is a representative, has a seat on the Arctic Council because of their possession of Greenland, which actually gives them a, a quite substantial claim, I think maybe even bigger, to the uh, you know percent of the Arctic uh, to the North Pole than, than the United States has. And so the Trump administration has been low-key, but in a very, you know, telling way, kind of talking about the Arctic and kind of talking about extending this period that we're in, the American phrase is, you know, uh, a period of great power competition, and expanding that to the Arctic Circle. Uh, and, and so I think there is much more of a strategic logic here than maybe people have wanted to admit or that maybe people are aware of. You know, Secretary Pompeo even was going to make a stop in Greenland in May uh, 2019 after the Arctic Council. He ended up canceling that. But people have been talking about Greenland in this context for a while. And, and just one last thing to mention here. Um, one of the ironies of this is that the Trump administration has been very frank in saying that there's this great power stuff with China and Russia. That's why we're interested in the Arctic. And also because of global warming, something it doesn't recognize in any other sphere, there's going to be new economic opportunities to develop all the Arctic resources. 
certainly some contradictions there. They mentioned Mike Pompeo and the speech that he made in, in May in Finland uh, at the Arctic Council ministerial meeting. So when it comes to this, this latest the eruption with Trump and Greenland, do you think this is just something that Trump himself has dreamed up? Or do you think there is some group of advisors close to Trump that have behind the scene been working this direction? You mentioned that maybe the whole point of the trip, the, the, the canceled state visit to Denmark, was to actually yeah. put an offer on the table to buy Greenland. Do you think this is, is something a little more widespread in the Trump administration than just Trump and his ego? Can I just have a little bit of license, maybe to speculate just a little bit? By all means. Um, because we're, we're, we're all speculating here uh, completely in the dark, of course. I think that there is something of a mixture going on here. So as I said, you know, Secretary Pompeo was going to go to Greenland, and so there were all these briefing materials prepared for him. And Trump and Pompeo get along very well. There was a profile of them last week in The New Yorker by Susan Glasser about how close they are. I think the words toadying and sycophantic were brought up. And I think that there was something that brought Greenland to Trump's eye. And I wonder if somebody mentioned, well, you know, Mr. President, in 1946, you know, this crazy thing happened. President Truman tried to buy Greenland. I don't think that that's where his briefing materials were going. Um, you know, the Heritage Foundation, which is a very conservative think tank with very close links to the White House, uh, prepared a public memorandum in advance of Secretary Pompeo's Arctic swing. And they were talking about how, of course, it's inevitable that Greenland is going to become independent. You know, this is the Heritage Foundation, right? Like, we cannot withstand this movement for national independence, so the United States needs to begin cozying up to Greenland. I think that somewhere in there, a couple of little bits of information came together. And whether that was in Trump's mind, whether that was maybe in Pompeo's mind, maybe there is somebody uh, out there in the oil and gas industry that also put those together. But I think that somewhere as Greenland kept coming up, and as the Arctic has kept coming up, that Trump saw the possibility for a big play. So I'm not sure if all this happened within Trump's own synapses or just among his circle. But I think that this kind of, if I had to guess, I think that this idea is no more than three to six months old and that it has something to do with the trip by Secretary Pompeo and the preparations for that. And this is totally speculation, but I'm just trying to look. No time other in his life has President Trump ever thought for Greenland about three seconds? If he can name the U.S. Air Force Base that's on Greenland, I will, I will personally buy him a well-done steak. So you think this might have been something fed to him, a well-done steak fed to him by the, the Heritage Foundation, who I have actually noticed have shown quite a bit of interest in the Arctic. I've noticed they've, they've sent representatives to different Arctic gatherings, and it seems like it's one of the areas that they put a lot of, uh, a lot of focus on. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear. I, the, the Heritage Foundation people have been very clear that they think the United States needs to have a strong relationship with an independent Greenland, which really, if you were going to think about it, this would be a lot cheaper, right? Send over a couple of guys from the National Endowment for Democracy, teach them how to do some protests, and then you know, the, the Greenlandic Parliament is already way in favor of independence. Just give them a little nudge. And this is actually a fictional scenario, a book that everybody in Washington and the security community has read. Ghost Fleet by August Cole and Peter Singer actually features as part of a war between China and the United States. The United States sponsoring a Greenlandic independence movement to get access to its resources. I think that that was probably more in line with what people were thinking, that there would be a very strong lopsided relationship between the U.S. and a more independent Greenland. And really, that would be 
if you're just thinking about this cold-bloodedly, that's everything the United States wants without any of the downsides of annexation. And it would be very, very hard for Denmark to complain about that. But I, I think that somewhere in there, somewhere in this conversation that is maybe a fourth or fifth tier thing in a world that includes an Iranian nuclear deal and a North Korean nuclear program and Chinese global competition and a Russian-backed civil war in Ukraine and Brexit and all these things, I think that somewhere these ideas just kind of came together in a manner that really, really briefed well. So that is kind of like my private theory about why we're talking about all this. And the underlying thing, of course, is that President Trump really has imperialist, hubristic beliefs about what the U.S. is and what it can do. And so he never had something that any other president would have had, which is to say, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. And so I think all of those things came together with a president who just has no filter. You used the word crazy and earlier the word ridiculous for this, this whole notion of the uh, United States buying Greenland. Now, you say it, it's it's those things because it's outdated. This is something that could have been feasible yeah. in 1867 or maybe even in 1918, but no longer is the case yeah. in the in the modern world. And is that because of everything that's happened since World War II in terms of decolonization and, and all the rest? You've got it exactly right. The UN Charter and its commitment to collective self-determination, the emphasis that the United States really placed on forging a post-war world that would be uh, largely decolonizing, and it hasn't perfectly decolonized, right? Like, a lot of countries continue to have colonies in the Pacific. Uh, Obviously, the United States has several literally defined non-self-governing possessions, non-self-governing territories itself uh, in the Caribbean, in the Pacific. So there are, you know, there are some gaps. Like, it's not Africa. It's not Asia. You know, that's not the scope of things that we're talking about. You know, even when we look at, say, French colonial possessions today relative to what they were, far smaller. So after the Second World War, there was a real push to make sure that individual countries and their peoples could have control over their own destinies. And that took decades to work out, but we're now well into that situation. But before the Second World War, yeah, you know, if you were a great power, you could do whatever you wanted. And as long as there was some fig leaf of legality, you could easily do this. And a lot of the conquest of Africa, for instance, was actually formally done as a series of sales. That is how King Leopold of Belgium ended up personally owning. Just think of how weird this is. He personally owned the country that is today the Democratic Republic of Congo. It was his and all the people there. So 150 years ago, even 100 years ago, when the U.S. bought the U.S. Virgin Islands, yeah, you could have done this. But today, today, not only could you not do this as a matter of international law, you also wouldn't want to do that. Because were the United States to successfully buy Greenland, let's imagine that somehow this happened. The very next thing that would happen is that China would begin buying up colonies itself. Suddenly you would have huge bidding wars, and eventually the possibility for huge great power competition of the more kinetic kind all around the world. There is a reason why the United States wanted to change the rules of the international game to get away from this kind of stuff. It wasn't just because of some gauzy idealism, it was because this stuff was supposed to be at the core of what drove competition turning into war. And so just wanting to voluntarily bring that back, ah, you know, even... You wanted, if you wanted Greenland to be part of the United States, offer them statehood. Just, you don't have to buy them. 
just offer them statehood. Well, that's my they next. They can be independent. They can be a state. They could just they could just join. That was my next question. Really, was uh, what if Greenland wanted to become part of the United States in some context? I'm not saying they they do, and they've they've been pretty clear that they do not. Obviously, yep. this was a diplomatic blunder. The way it was it was it was handled in terms of buying it from Denmark, the colonial uh, power over Greenland for over two centuries. Of course, it doesn't it doesn't come across very well at all. Diplomatic blunder. But let's say that the United States really did want to acquire Greenland. Could it be done, and how could it be done if, with the consent of the population of Greenland? Yeah, that, that is exactly the thing. It could be done with the consent of the population of Greenland. So if Greenland were to secede from the Kingdom of Denmark and then apply for statehood to the United States, this could be done either via treaty and a two-thirds majority in the Senate, the president signs and two-thirds majority, or it could be done via a concurrent resolution in Congress. Uh, and that is a path to statehood, which... Sometimes with less moral uh, certitude, sometimes with more unethical behavior, is actually a well-trodden path for American states to become part of the Union. That's how Texas came in. That's how Hawaii came in. Going all the way back, that's one of the ways that uh, Vermont came in. So that would actually be a, a way to do that. And you know, Greenland would therefore instantly get two senators. It would have you know, a population the size of Terre Haute, Indiana, a very small city. But it would have two senators of its own. It would have a congressperson. But it could be a state. I mean, there, there's no particular reason why it couldn't be. And in principle, you know, we could have a lot more applications for statehood than we do. I mean, it's now been 50, no, 60 years, 60 years since the last time we had a statehood application. But there's no reason why it couldn't happen. Um, and that would... You know, not only would constitutional lawyers have a field day, but that would also have been a way to change the status of Greenland without, you know, contravening international law. And if you note, by the way, formally, that is what happened with Crimea. And the Russians were very clear to observe all the formality. Now, of course, there is other stuff going on there that makes that illegitimate. But formally, that's how Crimea, the Russian Federation says, joined the Russian Federation. Oh, very interesting. Do you think statehood is what Trump has in mind or something else more like Guam or Puerto Rico or some other place like that? To the extent that he has thought about that, I am pretty sure that he probably did actually think about something more like Guam or something more like Puerto Rico. And we should mention that, you know, the fact that Trump has an imperialistic mindset, this is not the kind of, to the extent that there's beneficent imperialism, this is not that. Right. Like his view is basically, wow, Greenland has so many resources. Let's take them. Oh, there's people there. That's interesting. And he has not taken care of people living in Puerto Rico. 3.2 million people live there. He has not taken care of people living in the U.S. Virgin Islands. 100,000 people live there. These are communities that were devastated by Hurricane Maria uh, two years ago. Uh, and they still are being devastated, right? Like Puerto Rico is in the midst of incredible little political turmoil, three governors in two weeks. And yet, you know, the Trump administration has taken more than a hands-off, almost an active malign neglect in this way. So, you know, I, I, I think that he really does not have a great sense of what the end game was. Uh, and I'm not also sure that he 100% comprehends, for instance, that when Kim Jong-un threatens American military bases on Guam with nuclear devastation, that that would also kill 100,000 American citizens who are Guamanian. Um, I'm not sure that these compute to him as things that he should care about, uh, much in the way that, right, like, 
aside from Greenland, aside from the hurricane, when was the last time you heard Americans talk about their territorial possessions that aren't states? It's very, very rare. So I, I'm not sure that Trump being generally less enlightened than the average kind of politically aware American should have any more, we should expect him to have any more of an enlightened attitude on these issues in general. So you think it's going to be a bad deal for the Greenlanders and becoming probably, uh, in, a, in almost a literal sense, second-class citizens? Yeah, yeah. Greenlanders, if you're listening, insist on statehood. That is the only way. That is the only way that this is going to go well for you. The other thing, right, is like when we talk about Greenlanders, uh, what's the statistic? 88, 90% of them are Inuit. Now, you know, Alaskan indigenous populations, I want to be very careful here, have, I think, done better out of statehood, out of being part of Alaska, than most Indian nations in the United States, in the continental United States. But, man, the United States does not have a great history of treating native populations all that well when it acquires your territory. So if they don't insist on statehood, if they don't insist on getting those votes in the Electoral College and that representation in the Senate, it's going to go very, very poorly. And even there, you know, this is such a ridiculous idea, but we should actually take it seriously. Look at what China has done in Tibet. Look at what China has done in Xinjiang. Uh, just imagine what would happen if the United States acquired a resource-rich territory that is sparsely populated. It is not out of line to think that you know, within a few years you'd have 100,000 or even 25,000, 30,000 current American citizens living in Greenland, completely altering the island's ecology and society and politics um, and really changing its culture. And you know, that's, that's a huge thing. You know, just to treat this as a real estate transaction is, is insulting. It is dehumanizing. It is, uh, it is it's just so callous and, and harmful that you know, really could have only come from the Trump administration. Indeed. I want to go back a bit to the um, to one of the, the discussions uh, that we were having about uh, the, the precedent this would set in terms of if the United States could buy Greenland, it would set off a wave of other countries such as China buying uh, territories around the world. How do you distinguish that from what actually is taking place and has been taking place for quite a while now, this idea of land grabbing, where companies and countries are actually buying up uh, large swaths of territory, agricultural land and other, other uh, lands as a way to assert some, some form of sovereignty, you could say, that over these economic acquisition. Yeah. I mean, there is something that is there. And, you know, there have been, even though purchasing territory outright, along with the sovereignty that goes along with it, even though that's dead, you know, we should be clear, right? There are these little things that we kind of don't think about very often. But for instance, in the 1970s, the United States got a lease, quote unquote, for the island of Diego Garcia and turned it into a military base and displaced hundreds of thousands of people who were living there because the United States now had a lease. It now was leasing sovereignty. So you can't buy sovereignty, but you can lease it. Uh, and then this idea of land grabbing, um, the place that I know about this happening best is in places like Sudan and Africa. Uh, where a lot of rich oil, you know, oil-rich Arab countries like Qatar, like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE, have been buying up immense farms, either directly by the government or more often through government-sponsored enterprises. Uh, and this has been incredibly controversial in places like Sudan. But I think that there is a difference because even if ownership of land is conveyed to another state, is conveyed to another state-backed enterprise or state-owned enterprise, the fundamental right of sovereignty still rests with that political community. And as I think we all know, 
if you have sovereignty over something, then you are ultimately still the owner of that. You can always nationalize. You can always regulate. You know, that might be a legalist approach. It might be that you don't necessarily have the capability, but you do actually have that right. I, I think that that is something that is a lot different from saying that we're going to take the land and the people and all of the rights. You know, it may not be perfect, but it is it is a vastly preferable system to have countries peaceably buying up parts of land with the consent, however coerced, however you know much we want to uh, slight it, but with the consent of that country in which they're doing that economic activity, as opposed to just buying countries. Um, you know, neo-imperialism is not great, but it is way better than paleo-imperialism. And that's what this, you think, is an instant of, at least in uh, Donald Trump's fantasy, this is, this, is, this is like a 19th century form of imperialism. Yeah, I, I think that that is exactly what it is. And I think that he, I think that he is befuddled as much as anything as to why this is not something that everybody sees as a great idea. And, you know, you, you see a lot of loose talk from people, even people who are well-meaning, who say, well, right, you know, why shouldn't we get Greenland? Uh, you know, it would be a great acquisition. It's like, well, you're basically saying, why shouldn't we ignore, steal, take, you know, yet another you know, big chunk of land from Native peoples? And if we're doing it to Greenland, honestly, the only reason we're not doing it to Canada or to Mexico is because the cost-benefit ratio doesn't work out. And I think that we want to preserve our basis of our foreign policy and who we are on something a little bit ba- better than just the accounting. Now, you're a foreign policy uh, international relations scholar. I mean, what, in terms of some of these concepts that your profession uses, uh, neorealism, uh, liberal internationalism, where, where would you put this whole uh, this, this story? What is this an example of? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the, the realism of realists, right? I mean, like, this is just such a, this is such a naked 19th century, state-centric, everything reduces to national interest view of the world, that it is entirely realism. Um, and we can use some other schools, you know, constructivism to really get into the hows and whys and the understandings of the beliefs and the practices that are associated with this. But inside Donald Trump's mind, to the extent that there is an animating theory of international relations, it is just you know, straight 19th century state-centered honor and power styles of realism. And that's entirely in keeping with what's going on here. Fascinating few days for us uh, people interested in the Arctic and for foreign policy scholars like yourself, uh, Paul Musgrave. And uh, just to, to round things off, I mean, we're, we're recording this uh, around 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the 22nd of August, uh, Stockholm time. It's uh, 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning at your time on the 22nd of August. Things are happening by the hour. Where do you see this going from here? Do you think that Trump is going to drop this, or is he going to continue to escalate it? Or where do you see things perhaps going from here on out? Yeah, you know, four or five days ago on Twitter, I said that you know Trump is running into so much opposition that he's totally going to double down on this. And a very, very smart international relations scholar, whom I admire greatly, would say, like, this is crazy. He replied to me on Twitter said, this is crazy. He's not going to do anything. He's just going to drop it. This is this is too bad. I can't believe I was right. So now I hazard. Now, now I'm I'm really afraid to hazard a guess because this crazy thing I said turned out to be true. Um, I don't know, right? Like there are so many ways that this could just die, and there are so many ways that this could turn up in 
really remarkable ways elsewhere. For instance, you can imagine somebody in Netanyahu's government, if they are reelected, using this as a pretense to do a real estate deal to cement claims of sovereignty somewhere in the disputed territories. Uh, you could imagine Saudi Arabia, you could imagine Russia, you could imagine China, uh, or India for that matter, using this kind of precedent. Well, you know, if the U.S. is considering doing this, why shouldn't we be considering doing this? Um, and it might also be the case that the United States just, like, keeps trying to push this and really, for no good reason, drives a wedge even further between the United States and one of its most reliable and innocuous allies. And I, I think that that is silly as it is, I think that that's entirely within the realm of possibility. And one of the reasons why this is so awful is, if you're an American policymaker, you're already getting everything out of Greenland you could possibly want without having to run it. You have Air Force bases and scientific research stations and, you know, all the stuff that you would want. You know, there's a huge American military presence there, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to run the place. Why would you endanger this by making it politically unpopular in Denmark to continue this arrangement? And, and so, you know, I, my hope is that this just dies and that five or ten years from now, it's an article somewhere on the Internet about, you know, this crazy thing Trump once did. But my fear is that just by opening this can of worms and then by continuing to eat from it, Trump has really raised the prospect that worse things are going to happen. Well, it's kind of fun to capture this moment uh, here on the podcast that um, perhaps historians can turn to five or 10 or 20 years from now in the future to, to see uh, exactly how we were discussing these issues uh, here on the 22nd of August, 2019. So Paul Musgrave, thanks very much uh, for joining us here, Associate Professor at uh, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. This has been episode 16. Stay tuned for more episodes. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and other major podcast platforms. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks again for tuning in to Polar Geopolitics.